I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6 as we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark. You know, it's probably happened to you uh, where you run into a a friend you knew uh, when you were younger and they start out and say, you know, I knew you back when, I don't know about you, but that kind of strikes terror into my mind and heart when someone says that. I think of, you know, they they knew me back when I was doing maybe some stupid things before I became a Christian, maybe, and and uh, I, th- I thought about sharing some of those with you, but I didn't want them to be forever enshrined on YouTube. So uh, I will refrain. But, you know, Jesus kind of maybe went through that a little bit when he returned to, uh, to Nazareth. And uh, he never did anything embarrassing. How, how could he? He just grew up. Any, any reasonable person who reads the, the gospel of Mark and all of the gospels uh, sees that Jesus was, was more than, uh, a, he was more than a rabbi. He was more than a, just a charismatic leader. He healed diseases. He, he made people who were blind to see, cast out demons. He, he commanded the weather. These things that we've already looked at, he brought a little girl back to life. And Mark now allows us to see that how people who saw Jesus grew up responded to the gospel, respond to Jesus himself. Jesus visited Nazareth uh, twice. And the first time, uh, it seemed to start out pretty well when he stood up in a local synagogue and uh, read a messianic passage from Isaiah 61. And then in, in Luke chapter four, it says that today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And initially their response seemed positive. And again, in Luke four, it says that, that all spoke well of him. But Jesus knew that their hearts, uh, what, what their hearts were like, and he recognized that all they wanted to do was, was just see him perform miracles to satisfy their own curiosity or whatever. But then Jesus begins to be a little bit more confrontational in his preaching. He calls them to repent, to turn from their sin. And the mood changed to the point where it says in in Luke 4, uh, verse 29, jumping up, they, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff. Uh... What a loving town. Yeah, they were out to kill their, their local hometown boy right at the beginning of, their, of his ministry. That's rejection. And we can't for, forget the personal humiliation that Jesus went through when his family came to find him because they thought he was out of his mind and take him back home. And even though he was God incarnate, that rejection it had to be hard. It was his family. I'm sure Jesus had a heart to minister to the people that he grew up with, that he had known and that he loved. And so he makes a second attempt that we read about here in Mark chapter six. <clears throat> and you would think that after calming the storm and, and liberating this demon, <clears throat> excuse me, demon possessed man and healing the woman, raising Jairus's daughter, that they would maybe really sincerely give him a second chance. 
And so uh, you've got this on your outline. I hope you're following along with the outline. And it says this on the top, the people of Nazareth may have initially given Jesus and his disciples a warm welcome, but their initial interest in their hometown boy turned to spiteful resentment. So let's read our passage, Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. So as we look at these verses, and you've got this on your outline, the end of of chapter five is really an example of of great belief, great faith. And in these first six verses of chapter six, we see great unbelief. Jesus' family and his entire hometown wonder what's wrong with him. The people of Nazareth were offended by his presence and, and they reject him. And in these verses, we see the Lord reaching out to an unbelieving people and how he and his disciples respond. And there's some wisdom for us as we minister to an unbelieving world. There are some great insights here for you and for me. J.P. Meyer, who's a historian and a scholar, said this, the quotes on your outline said, what is beyond dispute is that in the ministry of two or three years, Jesus of Nazareth attracted and infuriated his contemporaries. He mesmerized and alienated the ancient world, unleashed a movement that has done the same ever since and thus changed the course of history forever. There are only two times it says in the New Testament that Jesus was astonished. Uh, Both of them have to do with faith. Positively, uh, Jesus was astonished at the faith of the Roman centurion. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus said he had not seen such a great faith in all of Israel. Negatively, it's about the lack of faith of the people in his own hometown that he sees in this passage in verse 6. And these are examples in Scripture of the devastating results of unbelief in this life and especially for all eternity. John 3.18 says it like this, He who believes in in him is not judged. He who does not believe in Jesus has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So Jesus considered Nazareth his hometown, even though he was born in Bethlehem, spent at least a couple of years in Egypt. But then he made his way back to this small town of Nazareth. Uh, when we've taken some of you all to Israel, we have visited a, uh, a, an outdoor museum called the Nazareth Village. And it's, it's pretty cool. It's like a first century uh, 
working little farm. It's a recreation of, of first century Nazareth. There's a, a wine press. Actually, I think it's the oldest wine press in, in Israel that you can see there. There's a, an exact replica of first century houses. Uh, there's a, a, a small synagogue. And the guide who was with us, and every guide takes a group in there and reads the passage that Jesus read from Isaiah 61, the Messianic passage, and then presents the gospel and gives people an opportunity to respond to the gospel. It's pretty cool. Well, first century Nazareth was made up of just a few hundred people. It was a very small town. Uh, I talked to someone just uh, this weekend who was, uh, had taken his mom back to a small town in Kansas. And uh, they, he said that everybody was eyeing them pretty uh, with a lot of suspect when they walked into a little donut shop to get a donut and a cup of, a cup of coffee. And uh, they kind of said, they said to the, this guy and his mom, we, we know you're, uh, we've seen you kind of wondering, around. what are you looking for? And uh, the, the guy said, well, my mom grew up here. And they said, oh, really? What's, what's your name? And they were like, okay. Um, and she said her name and like one of them used to babysit her and one of them, they all knew who she was. But this is like the small town of Nazareth. As Jesus ministered throughout Israel, <clears throat> he was generally received favorably with one notable exception right here in his own hometown. And the people of Nazareth were curious, but their faith did not come close to genuine saving faith that, that Jesus wanted to see. There were two visits by Jesus to Nazareth, like we've said, and, and the second one is months after the first. <clears throat> So if you look at verse one, the fact that Jesus had his disciples with him shows that he was there for public ministry to minister with them to the people. It was supposed to be that kind of a time, but the disciples would be exposed to the, the hard hearts of these people. And without exception, I think all of us could say we interact regularly with, with non-Christians who are maybe part of our family, maybe they're people we know from school, in class with us, maybe their neighbors, maybe uh, friends. But what we see here are some truths that, uh, of the nature of unbelief that will help us all as we interact with people who are not believers. And the first characteristic is that unbelief makes you miss the truth that's right in front of you. We see it in verse two. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. Their first response against Jesus on his first visit was a violent one. They, they tried to kill him. But in, in spite of that, when the Sabbath come, comes this time, they invite him to come into the synagogue and teach. Maybe they knew about his growing popularity. Maybe they had heard about the miracles. But they wanted to give him a second hearing, it seems like. They knew that he had caused admiration, that he had caused amazement as he taught throughout the, the area of Galilee and in particular north of where Nazareth is. The Greek word for amazed is actually to blast. It's like Jesus was blowing their minds initially. So it gave him a second chance. And yet their amazement did not lead them to put their faith in Jesus. They... they they hardened their hearts. They continued to reject him. Instead of recognizing the obvious, 
that was right in front of them, Jesus, and who he was, that he was empowered by God, these residents question the source of his supernatural power. <clears throat> and they don't go so far as to give the credit to Satan, but they don't give it to God either. But look at the questions that are asked of him initially. Where did this man get these things? What's the wisdom that he's been, uh, what's this wisdom that he's been given? What are the remarkable miracles he's performing? So they could maintain their unbelief. They, they looked at every other explanation other than what Jesus was saying. They were a little like the compact ground that we looked at in, in Mark chapter four in the parable of the soils that was hardened. Their hearts were impenetrable. Their hearts were hard like that hard soil. They'd been given more than enough evidence and yet they refused to believe. They saw Jesus do miracles. They even called the miracles remarkable. Sometimes what people need to understand, and this is on your outline, is that miracles do not contradict the laws of nature. They only supersede those laws. And I think they were skeptical, like some people are skeptical here. Well, you know, they say, well, I'll believe it if I, if I see a miracle in front of my eyes. They don't believe it if they see a miracle in front of their eyes. <clears throat> You know, the, the thinking of, of miracles, the law of gravity uh, says that it's impossible for an airplane that's heavier than air to be able to fly, to be, have, to be sustained in, in flight. It's impossible according to the law of gravity. But there's a law that supersedes the law of gravity, and that's the law of aer aerodynamics. And it's not, it's not that, that, uh, that that one law is is broken, it's that there's a law that supersedes it. And the same thing is true with a miracle. Raising someone from the dead is impossible from a human perspective, but God doesn't operate on the same level we do. But the people of Nazareth weren't thinking like that. They were thinking that, that this was impossible, that they were, they were, they were very skeptical at best. And the next thing we see, number two, is that unbelief often focuses on secondary issues. Again, instead of accepting the obvious, those from Nazareth threw up smoke screens, I think, to, to justify their unbelief. They were just so shocked that this boy that they saw grow up was the long-awaited Messiah that they knew was going to come, they knew was promised. And so verse three asks more questions. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here? Well, Jesus had, we know from this, at least six half-brothers and sisters. These things are all true that they say here, but they're not relevant to the issue that's of him being the Messiah. It was prophesied by, they knew that it was that Jesus or the Messiah would be born into a Jewish family somewhere. They didn't know where that was going to be. Now what we can learn from this, and, and as we deal with those who don't yet believe, and this is on your outline, is that as we talk to people, we have to keep bringing the discussion back to Jesus. Yes, we try to answer questions as, as best we can. 
We try to respond, but oftentimes the questions become a smokescreen just so they don't have to believe. This is the only time that the title actually Son of Mary is used. And normally a son is identified by his father's name, but it, it could be that Joseph had already passed away. Uh, it, it could be that they meant this as a dig, that, that they felt that he was an illegitimate child. But the townspeople also knew that Jesus had siblings, and again, at least six of them are mentioned here. And some of them became part of the church after the resurrection. It took that for the, even them to believe. But by bringing all this up, the people of Nazareth turned basically irrelevant issues into stumbling blocks for themselves. They diverted the attention away from the truth in order to reject Jesus. They were unwilling to embrace him for who he truly was, the Son of God, God the Son. You know, one of the most interesting courses I, I took in seminary was a course called Critical Readings in Modern Atheism and Skepticism. And in this course, we read all the famous atheists. Uh, think of, you know, just, yeah, a lot of different books that we read. But, um, you know, one of the things that was in common that all of those authors had in common is that none of them dealt with the facts of the resurrection. You know, that's one of the things that's unique about Christianity is that we have a historical religion. It's based in history. And they don't deal with the facts of history. The third characteristic of unbelief that we see here is that since they can't refute his message, they attack him. It becomes a personal attack. Verse 3 ends with these words, they took offense at him. We get the English word scandalize from the Greek word for, for offense. And it means to snare, to, to cause to stumble. So they were, they took offense at Jesus. Jesus emphasized the truth in his preaching. I'm sure that was similar to the first time that he, that he came there that made them want to kill him. And once again, the people are outraged. Jesus' response to their anger and their resentment is by quoting a, a well-known proverb. Look at verse four. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. You know, this is kind of what we might mean today when we say that familiarity breeds contempt. And you've got this on your outline. Familiarity wears out belief. It can it's got that potential. And if your faith has become too familiar to you, then, then be aware that you're trading a relationship with the, with the living God, with something that's lifeless, a religion. That's not what we're about. We're about a relationship with God. You know what? Stagnation happens when, when, it's, when, when the water's never disturbed. You know, we always get these warnings around here. Don't let stagnant water sit in your, in your yard. It'll breed mosquitoes. We don't have many around here. We want to keep it that way. But the same thing happens to a faith that's never challenged. It's never tested. Testing makes us grow. 
It's what we need in order to avoid stagnation. God knows that. And we all should be on our guard not to become cynical. It's a dangerous place to be, to be cynical. So people say, well, how do you keep from being cynical? I'll tell you how to, get in, uh, how to keep from getting cynical. Get involved in a ministry. Get involved in the lives of other people. Uh, share your faith with someone. That will keep your faith alive. You know, maybe the number one way to keep from being cynical is to never think that you have God all figured out. That your problems are too big for God. We need to, to want God, not our idea about God. We need to have a larger view of God. The smaller your God is, the, the larger your problems are. You know, Nathan last week mentioned a book that he had read that, that I've also read that's a great book I would recommend to you called Your God is Too Small by J.B. Phillips. And one of the quotes from that book, he says this, God will inevitably appear to disappoint the man and the, or the woman who is attempting to use him as a convenience or a prop or a comfort for their own plans. God has never been known to disappoint the person who is sincerely wanting to cooperate with God's own purposes. And so that's a fair question for all of us to ask. Do you want to cooperate with the purposes of God? Are you reading the word so that you can learn how to obey the word, so that you can follow Jesus? When you think that your problems are too big for God, that's when cynicism will plague your life and your God is definitely too small. You know, the people that Jesus grew up around were saying with resentment, who does this guy think he is? That's what they were saying, in essence. They just couldn't believe that someone they knew would be the long-awaited Messiah. When you can't refute the content of, of, of the message that Jesus was presenting and, and that we present to unbelievers, they'll, they'll oftentimes attack the messenger. And you know what Jesus said? Don't be surprised when that happens. We should expect that. It says in John chapter 15, uh, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And then finally, number four on the outline, Jesus' power is not diminished by unbelief. So in response to their unbelief, Jesus chose not to do miracles in Nazareth, with a few exceptions. And Mark explains in verse five, he could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. The issue is not that Jesus lacked supernatural power to perform miracles, not at all. Rather, there was no reason to do miracles there because the people had already decided what they believed. They'd already rejected Jesus. And because the people of Nazareth had, had set their rejection in stone, Jesus rejected them. Clearly, Jesus' power isn't lessened by unbelief. 
We have all kinds of examples in scripture of Jesus healing and doing miracles when there was not belief there. There was no reason for him to do miracles there because he'd been rejected already. The withholding of more miracles was just a sign of judgment. And the purpose of Jesus doing the miracles is never to entertain people. It's never to show off. It's to move those who are open to the gospel towards saving faith. And unfortunately, he saw that that wasn't doing it. That wasn't going to happen in Nazareth. And in the end, their rejection of Jesus was so intense that Jesus looks at their unbelief and he's amazed at their unbelief. The word amazed there means that Jesus was jolted to the depth of his being at their rejection of him. So as we look to apply this passage uh, to our lives, I want to look at at some groups of people that we see here in this passage that we've looked at. Uh, The first group there are the disciples. And in contrast to other groups, I'm thinking especially of the the religious population, the Sadducees and, and the Pharisees, the disciples in these verses don't debate what they hear Jesus teach. They take it in. They realize that it is the truth of God. So you've got this on your outline. They don't necessarily understand everything at first, but they accept it as the truth from God's word. They know that Jesus is speaking words of truth. You know, maybe you don't believe in in marking up your Bible, uh, but I think that's a great thing to do, to underline verses that mean a lot to you, to highlight them. Uh, and it, you know, it, it's almost like you're writing your own commentary in the, in the margins as you take notes. But I, I encourage you to do that. You know, the Holy Spirit becomes our teacher. It talks about that in John 15. It's like the Holy Spirit takes us by the hand and guides us into all truth. And so we recognize that the Holy Spirit points us always to Jesus. To those who are genuinely committed, which is, the, I, I realize, the vast majority of you, <clears throat> you know, you make the work of the pastoral staff a joy by following Jesus, by desiring to, to serve, by being attentive to the needs around you, by looking for opportunities to, to represent the Lord in the most positive way to others. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. And, and I, I, I see examples of that all the time, of you loving one another. And, and that's a great testimony to the world around us. You know, you give me the motivation to, to work through challenges and, and, you know, you're the ones that come up and say, man, that was like you read my mail this week and, and what you said or whatever. I mean, just, you're, you're always encouraging, not just to me, but to everyone, to, to the other pastors and to each other. And that's part of why we gather together to encourage each other. And what a joy that is. And, and we could call this second group those who are curious. They ask questions like, like in verse two. 
and maybe they haven't rejected the message of the gospel, but they're undecided and they continue to search. I think we all know people like that, maybe that have honest doubts. And so we, we do everything we can to respond. If we don't know the answer, we can simply say, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but I'll go look it up. I'll find the answer for you. And we can bring the answer back to them. But if you know someone like that, or if you are someone like that, I would say keep being curious. Keep asking questions. Don't stop until they're answered. It's great to do that. Stick with it. And my word to you is, <clears throat> you know, you don't, don't feel like you have to have every question answered and every doubt dismissed before you come to faith. And that's what we need to communicate to people that we know that are like that. You know, even when you are born again, when you become a genuine Christ follower, a Christian, you won't immediately have all the answers you want to every question you have. You, know, you think you'll find out what, what, what I've found, that, that you do get questions answered eventually. So if you're reading the Bible and you have a question, put a question mark out in the margin. I would just say write it in pencil because you'll get that answer and then you can erase it and write the answer in there. But that journey starts when we respond to God in faith, when we trust him alone for our salvation, when we receive his grace. It's not about what we do. It's about what's already been done for us on the cross. That's what Christianity is all about. And then the third and the largest group are those who are closed, those who are hard-hearted, those who are cynical. And the cynics think the problem is with those who believe. The cynics think the problem is with you. They don't ever consider that it might be with them. It's frustrating because you can't reason really with a cynic. You, we, I think we've all spoken, I've sure spoken to my share of cynics. I'm guessing you have too. No matter what you answer, it's not enough for them. They won't believe. It's just ways to bring up other issues. And I think what they're, do, what they're doing, what I find they're doing oftentimes is avoiding real heart issues. I find that there's often a sin that they just don't wanna give up. And so they, they think, boy, if, I, if I'm going to uh, become a Christian, there's a lot of things in my life that are gonna have to change. They realize that. They don't wanna change. So they'll, they'll put up every excuse, every smoke screen they can to not believe. And the most effective, this is on your outline, the most effective thing that we can do for a cynic is to pray. To leave these folks in God's hands. The, the prayer for them should be, Lord, let me communicate love to them. Break down this person's resistance to the truth. Open their heart, open their mind to you. You know, many of you have heard of Josh McDowell. Uh, he was the author of the book, More Than a Carpenter, that we gave away at, at, at uh, Easter. Which, if you haven't read, I encourage you to read it. Uh, it's such a good book and short. Um, those are always the better books, right? If they're short. Um, when he first was confronted with Christianity, you know, I'd, I don't think I'd ever really read his story about how he, came to, how he came to faith in Christ himself. 
But when he was first confronted with Christianity, he was, his response was, that's for, un, and this is a quote, unthinking weaklings, not for intellectuals. And of course, under all the big talk, he had a deep need in his own heart. And he didn't want to communicate that to the people that he was around. He had met some, some genuine Christians who were really different. And, and he asked one of them, man, what makes you so different? And he said in kind of the intellectual environment that he was at, he didn't expect the answer that he got when, when the person looked at him and said, Jesus Christ. That kind of blew Josh McDowell away. Uh, he was so surprised at that, at that response. He said, Jesus Christ, I'm fed up with religion. I'm fed up with the church. I'm fed up with the Bible. And he said this person responded and said, I didn't say religion I said, Jesus Christ. And this person pointed out something that, that he never really realized up to this point. He said, and, and I quote Josh McDowell, he said, Christianity is not a religion, him quoting this person. Religion is humans trying to work their way to God through good works. Christianity is God coming to men and women through Jesus Christ. And then his new friends gave him a challenge. They said, I challenge you uh, to make a serious intellectual examination of the claims of Christ. What these atheists did not do and these skeptics did not do in that class that I took in seminary. And so he actually took some time off school. He went to Europe and, and he, he wanted to go to the, as far back in the source material as he could. And so he traveled over Europe and, and he said he found, and, and this is a quote, I found more <clears throat> evidence in abundance, he said. Evidence that could, he could hardly believe with his own eyes. And once he put his faith in Christ, which he did, then someone said, well, how do you know you're a Christian? And Josh McDowell's response was, you know, there's, there's several ways to answer that, but let me just say this, that it changed my life. That's my number one response. It changed my life. And then this is a quote, he explains it. He said, it is this transformation that assures me of the validity of my conversion. That night I prayed four things to establish a relationship with the resurrected living Christ. And I'm grateful for those prayers, that those prayers have been answered. First he said, I said, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. And then second, I said, I confess those things in my life that aren't pleasing to you, and I ask you to forgive and cleanse me. He says, God tells us no matter how deep the stain of your sins, I can remove it. I can make you clean as freshly fallen snow. Paraphrasing Isaiah chapter one. And then Josh McDowell says, third, I said, right now, in the best way I know how, I open my life and trust you as my Savior and Lord. Take control of my life. Change me from the inside out. Make me the type of person you created me to be. And then the last thing he prayed is he said, thank you for coming into my life by faith. And it was faith based not on ignorance, but based on the evidence that he found, on the facts of God's word. And you know what I think is so cool is that each of us has a story like that. Each of us has a faith story of how we have come to faith. 
And so I'll tell you what, I want to challenge you guys to, to, if you've never written out that faith story, write it out. If you've never, if you, maybe you've written it out, maybe you've thought it through, you could easily share it with someone, then pray this week for an opportunity to share it. Pray for an open door and you watch God provide an open door for you to share it. Think about that and do it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the this sobering account that Jesus can be offensive to people and yet this is the way the world is saved. Help us to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who, who points us to Jesus, who teaches us your word and to follow Jesus in our lives, to be obedient to the word. Transform us, Lord, we pray, so that we might be agents of your love and agents of this salvation to the world. And if there's anyone here this morning who has never started a personal relationship with you, may they respond now in faith. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. And now may God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole. Put you together, spirit, soul, and body and keep you fit for the coming of our master, Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable. If he said it, he'll do it. Amen. God bless you and enjoy some good time of fellowship together.